All right, thanks, Peter. Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks again for joining, uh, especially if you're brand new, if you're a friend or family, neighbor, or just someone who found us um, online. Uh, thanks for being here today uh, at our, our virtual church online. So um, we are going to be in Psalm 57 today. So if you want to turn there in a, a Bible or a phone app, that would be ideal. Uh, Spencer will paste in uh, I think in the Facebook feed, some of the passages, the key passages, and the whole psalm today, too. So it will be there. Uh, it can be kind of tricky to handle that, though, on Facebook sometimes. And so uh, it's best to, to turn to a Bible or a phone app. Psalm 57 will be in the whole psalm today. As you're doing that, a couple of quick announcements uh, and asides before we, be, we begin. Uh, the first is, um, because of this whole virus thing, Spencer will not be taking a sabbatical this summer. As many of you know, he was slated to do that. Uh, it's uh, his and Amy's decision to uh, forego it for now, and they'll um, probably do it next summer unless we kind of get creative throughout uh, next year and do it earlier. But um, we were supportive as a church, whatever they whatever they wanted to do, and it just um, it uh, just wouldn't have worked. A lot of what they wanted to do for rest and for uh, vacations, uh, if they're not already canceled, probably will be canceled. And so activities as well, even in the city, um, in the parks and so forth. And so. They uh, opted to wait, but can pray for them that the summer would still be a, a time of rest for them and just pray for their encouragements. Uh, Spence didn't ask me to say this uh, here or anything. This is from me, but uh, just pray for their uh, discouragement that they'd be still encouraged uh, in this time. So it is a disappointing thing. But, um, but uh, on the positive side, uh, for me, at least selfishly, I get to have him around still, and we do. So um, it'll be great to see him. But just wanted you guys to know that because you'll be seeing him. Uh, here in the services when, when we can gather again or on the live feeds or a little bit of both if we overlap in that um, in the coming months here. So um, the second thing is uh, we are going to do a post-sermon Q&A like we have been for the past couple of sermons or services. And so if you have a question about the Psalms in general or Psalm 57 in particular or uh, the sermon, something uh, that's, that's said that uh, might even be a little bit of a bunny trail or something, you can uh, email that during the, the service, so anytime between now and the end of the sermon, to sq, for sermon questions, sq at hiawathachurch.com. And Spencer will uh, feed a few to me, and we'll answer as many as we can in about uh, five to six minutes uh, span of time. So we, And if we can't get to it, we'll email you back uh, later on. And they will be uh, anonymous as well, so don't worry about that if you're, uh, if you're concerned. They'll be all anonymously handled. All right, so here we go. We're going to dive into the Psalms today. Uh, if you're just joining us or just by way of refresher, the Psalms are a wonderful book of the Bible. They uh, depends on your background in the church uh, or even just kind of culturally the Psalms are mentioned too, but it depends on your background. The Psalms are kind of a popular book. Uh, they're referenced a lot. A lot of songs are written after them. Uh, even once we sing here at Hiawatha, a lot of them are borrowing language from the Psalms. They are essentially, by uh, definition, prophetic songs that sing the gospel poetically beforehand. So most of these were written a thousand years before Jesus was born, uh, but they are still about him, uh, prophetically, typologically. Uh, many like to call the Psalms the songbook of Jesus because of how much they are about him and how much Jesus and other New Testament authors cite the book as a warrant for understanding the life and especially the sufferings of Jesus Christ. So have that in mind as we go here this morning. Uh, it'll make a lot more sense. It'll be more clear if you have that kind of a prime in your mind. And I'll make it all the more clear as I comment on it here as we go. All right, so Psalm 57, we'll start with verse zero, which is a kind of just a commentary on 
uh, what kind of psalm it is and, and what tune to, to sing the psalm. A lot of the psalms have a verse zero. Uh, psalms 57 is, To the choir master, according to do not destroy, a miktam of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. All right, so the, the terms miktam and do not destroy are musical terms. They're, uh, we don't know what miktam means exactly. It's a Hebrew term. Uh, it's probably a musical term of some kind or a song tune. Do not destroy probably refers to a song tune as well. Other psalms link to that uh, notion too. So it's probably a, a song tune term that uh, is meant to be uh, read in. And so think the psalm is meant to be sung according to this tune. Do not destroy, if that helps at all. Don't get too hung up on that, though. I'll come back to some of that here as we go, especially the song tune. It actually is kind of cool that, that it's mentioned specifically, but don't get too hung up on it. The bigger thing here is this psalm was written by David before he was king in a very specific biblical and historical context in the book of 1 Samuel. So after David slayed Goliath the giant, when no one else, including Saul the king, was strong or, or brave enough to, after that, Saul became jealous of David. He was threatened by him, and he sought to kill him. And so a lot, a lot of the books of first, uh, the end of 1 Samuel and um, some of 2 Samuel is about Saul chasing David to want to kill him. He's threatened by him, and, and he's jealous of him, and he wants to kill him. At one point, David flees into the wilderness, and there's this, there's this cave there. He goes into the cave to hide from Saul, and it was there that he wrote this psalm. So it's very specific. It's really cool, and I'll talk about that more on this in, in just a minute. But uh, several of the psalms actually were written during this time when David was hiding in a cave with some of his friends, actually, um, from Saul. All right, let's read the whole psalm here then to begin, verse 1 through 11. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. All right, so two big angles on this today, uh, similar to how we handle a lot of the Psalms and narrative in the Bible. We're going to start with the human side of this passage, which is to say uh, that the Psalm is something David is singing, but it's something that we can sing too out of our own experiences as a human being like him, as a sinner uh, saved by grace. 
So uh, he starts in the Psalms. Verse one is, is actually kind of a, it's not just verse one, but kind of an all encompassing summary in one sense of the Psalm. It's a cry out for deliverance. It's a cry out for mercy. So he starts with a cry for help that I think we can all resonate with. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. Now, mercy is compassion shown towards someone over whom you have the power to inflict punishment of some kind. So think about that, that first song we sang about mercy, how it also linked with the idea of being indebted, having this, uh, this unpayable debt, and yet we cry out to God to show us mercy in that state. So actually keep that in mind because it's going to come up a little bit later here on contextually with something that David experiences in the cave. But mercy is compassion shown towards someone over whom you have the power to inflict punishment of some kind or, or to acquire something from someone. Which is interesting if you think about it in David's case, because he, at least here in the cave story, is the innocent party. He's being unjustly chased and threatened. Yet here in the cave, and we see this in others of his Psalms as well. Psalms, Psalm 51 is a great example of this on some level, though he's definitely kind of crying out in his sin. But the way he talks about sin there, there's some cool stuff going on there. But here in the cave, as we see in other Psalms, he uses the experience here of being chased by Saul and threatened to think about his own sin. Now, David's obviously asking for deliverance from the hand of Saul as well here, but this is important to remember, and we say this all the time, but our greatest problem in life is us. Our greatest problem is our hearts. Not to minimize other problems as, as though it's wrong to pray for them. Again, David does do that here, clearly. But smaller problems can point to bigger ones. They should. They do. Again, here for David, clearly. And they should for us. But in a world that can't stop shouting at how others are wrong, but we are right, this is actually a breath of fresh, humble air. And, and it sets our hearts in a, in a right way before God so we can be in the right frame of mind to receive the actual gospel. So with this in mind, let's go back to verse 1 where it says, God is a merciful God. So he cries out to God for mercy, but of course the theology in that is, is the, the assumption, the presumption, the truth that God actually is merciful. Don't take that for granted. The Psalms are wonderful for this. The whole Bible is wonderful for this, but the Psalms are wonderful for showing us what God is like. This is what he's like. This is a characteristic of his. And what's equally good news, if you flip it around, the Bible never says that God is cruel. The Bible never says that God is ruthless. Instead, it says God is, it says and it shows God is merciful to the undeserving. And it does this, I think, on two levels. In the psalm, but I think branching out to, we, we see this especially elsewhere, but in the psalm we see God shows us mercy when we are experiencing physical storms of some kind whatever that might be, sickness or otherwise. This doesn't mean he always heals. We know or we should know, we come to know. In fact, I think one of the greatest marks of Christian maturity is coming to know this, but we, we come to know when we, when we grow in theology and read the Bible and come to know God all the more through Christ. We know our greatest need is him. Our greatest need is Jesus himself, not comfort. And so sometimes he will take things away from us to help us see this. This is important to understand. 
And yet, it's still right for us to cry out to him in, in distress. We know he's a good God who loves to give good gifts to his children, as Jesus, his son, himself teaches. And so if you pray and storms do pass, if you are healed, if you are provided for, if, if your anxiety and depression is lifted, uh, if the vice of sin is, is at least temporarily weakened, whatever the answer to prayer might be, don't miss the opportunity to thank him. Don't miss the opportunity to see the mercy, the undeserved mercy you have in that moment and thank him because no good exists apart from him. If they don't pass, if, you're, if the storms don't pass, don't miss the opportunity to think, well, maybe he has a plan for this and maybe he's showing me mercy in other ways. And that leads me to the second part of, of mercy, which is God shows us mercy not just when he saves us from physical storms, but when he saves us from being pummeled by sin and death, which are our true enemies in experience and in the Bible. Look at verse three again. If you have an open Bible before you or a phone app, look at verse three. It says, he will send from heaven and save me. Psalm 57.3 says, God will send from heaven and save me. So there's two things there. One, salvation is something God sends to us. He, he announces to it and, it, and it travels somewhere. It comes to us and it saves us. He sends out. And that's important because what the Bible's not saying is that salvation comes from something that we produce, right? So God sends to us rather than asks us to produce it ourselves, and then second, Jesus is the ultimate one God sends, right? Psalm 57 is about Jesus. So broadly speaking, David's saying God is one who sends salvation. Specifically speaking later, when the Bible clarifies this psalm in the New Testament, we see that God is the only one he sends. There's no other one he sends to be the ultimate, not just form, but the ultimate personified salvation, the one who will work for us and fight our battles and save 1 John 4.14, of the many, says, The Father, God, has sent his Son from heaven to be the Savior of the world. And so relatedly, think back to verse 0 when I was talking about the tunes of the psalm and the way the psalm kind of introduces itself. Think back to verse 0. Look back to it if you have an open Bible. It said the tune of the psalm, remember, is called, According to Do Not Destroy. The psalm is meant to be sung or played to, to not, do not destroy. And that might sound kind of odd to us, but it's not when you think about these psalms in New Testament terms, as we should, because the Bible does. And so in the same way, the tune of the song of the gospel is, do not destroy. The gospel sings, do not destroy over us. As if God himself is saying through his son's shed blood, let destruction pass over my church. No one will lay a hand on them. I have decreed and decided to show them mercy because I love them. I am declaring them innocent. And here's how. All by taking the storms and destruction on myself instead. And that leads me to this next section, uh, this next kind of lens by which to view the psalm, which is the divine side. 
So that is to say, as if this psalm is the actual song of Jesus Christ, who is the descendant and the son of David himself. So this is a new concept for you. We've been doing this and practicing this and and teaching it, essentially, not just preaching, but teaching this concept for a couple of weeks here in the Psalms. But if this is a new concept for you, just understand that the Bible reads the Psalms this way itself. I mentioned that before. But a great example of this is how Hebrews 10 in the New Testament uses Psalm 40 and says, when it quotes it, Christ said these words. Jesus said Psalm 40 when he lived and especially when he died. They belong to him. So even though these words were written a thousand years before Jesus' birth by someone else, they belong to him. They're actually his words. It's kind of like uh, that that passage that Spencer read from John 1 right before uh, the last song is that the idea that John the Baptist says, one is coming after me who ranks before me. It's the same with David. One is coming after him because Jesus was born after him, a thousand years after him, yet he ranks before David. It's the same idea. And so kind of an odd thing, but super helpful interpretationally and clarifyingly. The Psalms are ultimately Christ's words, not all in the same way necessarily, and it's not always easy to see. And it obviously does not mean that they aren't the cries and songs of actual human beings like us either. We've been talking about this already today. But it does mean that even though David wrote this, it was the second David in the Bible, who is Jesus Christ, who truly said them, who truly meant them at the highest level that they were intended for. He fulfilled them as if they were prophecies. All right, so here's what I mean when it comes to Psalm 57. With all of this said, If you step back a bit, this psalm is basically a depiction of the three-part passion narrative of Jesus Christ. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. All right, so let's kind of work through those uh, three things in order. First, his death. Verses 1 to 3 in Psalm 57 are Jesus' death. It's where he faces, quote, the storms of destruction for us where he's chased by fellow Jews unto death. And think about the context of 1 Samuel, which I'll come to here in a minute. David experienced this, but Jesus especially does, right? It's where he cries out to his father in pain, like David is here. Jesus ultimately does that. Many of the Psalms are meant to indicate that David's suffering is typical of Jesus's, which would far eclipse eclipse it and surpass it. It's where he, to quote verse 2, fulfills his purpose for him. So you see how this makes so much more sense when understood through the lens of Christ? Jesus fulfilled God's purpose for him, which ultimately was to die on a cross for us in our place. That's the mission. That's why he was sent from heaven, right? Remember when it said that God sends salvation and mercy from heaven to help? That was... That was the plan, that was the purpose, that was the mission, that was the intent. Not just to save, but to save by way of substitution. And so when Jesus' cries here are heard, like David's are, but especially when Jesus' cries are heard by the Father, you know, they, they are heard so we understand that our pain is being eclipsed by his. His suffering ensures that our suffering's on borrowed time. And so... 
the hope in this psalm is not God will pass storms around you if you're good. That's not the gospel. It's not biblical theology. It's not what this psalm is saying. But instead, God will send from heaven to place the storms on his son instead of us. And in that way, show us mercy. All right. Verses four to six are Jesus's burial. Let's look at that next. Verses four to six are the burial of Christ, where it says he, quote, lies with lions, which should remind us right off the bat of Daniel's figurative burial with lions in Daniel six, if you know that story. And so, of course, David's burial here in the cave prefigures Christ's as well. But let's look at some of this language. It says in verse 6, my soul was bowed down, which is reminiscent and actually a, a verbatim uh, language used here for it, but reminiscent of how Jesus would later, quote, bow his head and give up his spirit. It's from John 19. So lots of death imagery here, not just in the last uh, part of it, verses 1 to 3, but especially here in the burial section in the cave. Lots of death imagery here in general, but look how he adds to it. Um, the, the Psalms are, are wonderful at this, are good examples of this. The Bible does it elsewhere too, but it kind of takes a, a way of saying something and then kind of annotates it, or it says the same thing a little bit differently, but maybe in a heightened way. It does, this is a good example that it does that here as well. So lots of death imagery, but he, he adds to the idea of lions by saying in verse four, as the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows. And actually before that, fiery beasts. And so it goes from lions to fiery beasts, which sound odd, weird, right? Poetic. Uh, not real in the sense that they're not physical animals, but actually something more like, you know, ultimate lions. But then he goes on uh, past that and says, here's what I mean. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows. And so basically what the picture you get in Psalm 57 is David is said to be lying down with sinners. And so then we say, Jesus is said to be lying down with sinners. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, fiery beasts, lions. And isn't this exactly what the burial of Christ means to us? So on, on two levels. One, Jesus was buried with the dead. That is to say, he actually died. He was actually put into a tomb and a stone was actually rolled over the face of the tomb, uh, just like it was uh, over the lion's den for Daniel, by the way. So you see that theme run throughout. But two, he's buried for the dead. He's buried with the dead, but Jesus is buried for the dead as well, to gather the dead to himself. And here's where this point really gets driven home. Remember the context here, which I didn't read from yet. I'll do that here, but I mentioned it. The context to this whole psalm is when David wrote this in a cave, running from Saul. In 1 Samuel 22, if you want to turn there quick, I think Spence will kind of uh, paste this in to the feed. But in 1 Samuel 22, we get the narrative side to the story. So Psalm 57 is the poetic side, but 1 Samuel 22 is the narrative side. In 1 Samuel 22, too, it says this. Listen to this. When David was in the cave, everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt 
And everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became captain over them. Isn't that just weird and awesome and beautiful? And remember, these things here too in 1 Samuel 22 are there for the sake of Jesus Christ, that he might fulfill them, recapitulate them, wrap them around himself and revisit them and take them to a higher level. That is to say, when Jesus was buried, he gathered sinners to himself. When he was buried, he gathered indebted ones to himself, people under trillions and trillions of dollars of spiritual debt. He gathered those in trouble and in distress. He gathered those with spears for teeth, snake-like, devil-like people, murderers, even the dead to himself. In other words, people exactly like us. Don't miss this. The Bible is telling us, Psalm 57 is telling us, the Gospels in the New Testament are telling us that it's his death and his burial that save us. It's his death and his burial that forgives our debts. It's his death and, our burial, and his burial that ends our distress and ends our troubles. All right, the last section here is verses 7 to 11. In verses 7 to 11 in Psalm 57 are Jesus' resurrection. He says there in, in, that, in that section, Awake, my glory. He says, Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. And waking from sleep is a biblical idiom for resurrection. It, the, the idea being that for those who die as Christians, it's as if we just go to sleep with the certainty that one day our bodies will wake up from death, will be put back together. We will stretch, we'll yawn, like we're waking up from a long sleep. We'll stand up and enter into our new eternal lives on a new earth with Jesus forever, never to die again. That's the idea. But this is important. Before our resurrection, though, was necessarily Christ's. He was resurrected at dawn. He awoke his glory for us. He sang us into existence. This whole thing reminded me of when Aslan creates by singing in The Magician's Nephew, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia before. But in Christian theology, the resurrection, Easter Sunday, is the first day of the new creation. The way Jesus is making all things new is by dying, by being buried, then rising up out of the ground like a perennial in the spring. And one thing I love about the Psalms, especially Psalms like this, but you could apply so many of them to this idea, is that when you read them through the lens of Christ, I mean, David was a musician and he was a giant slayer. You know, and so when we think about Christ and read these Psalms through the lens of it, that it gives us a glimpse into the joy he had when making all things new, as if he sang us into existence himself, that when, when he was saving us, he wanted to, that he enjoyed it, almost like an artist painting something and humming to himself or herself when, um, when, he, painted, when, he, when he was painting or taking a photograph or, or drawing or gardening. 
So listen to Zephaniah 3.17. This is a wonderful prophecy in the Old Testament that links up with all of this. It says, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. This is the key. He will rejoice over you with singing. So there it is, right? God sings. God makes music. And he doesn't just do it, just enjoy it. He sings over us. He, he is that happy with us through his son's death and resurrection. He loves us. He wants to show mercy. The way he does it is not by tapping into some inherent goodness inside of us. Remember, he sends from heaven, not identifies from within us, but he sends from heaven to save. Salvation is objective to us. Never forget that. Salvation is objective. It's outside of us. And so we look to it. We sing to it. We respond to it. We pray for it. We receive it like a gift, but we don't work it up ourselves. But Zephaniah 3.17, I think, is uh, one of those great examples. it's, It's why it's so important for us to know the Bible well. And I know you guys are all in different places with this, and that's great. Some of you may have never, ever picked up a Bible before. But But let me just say this, wherever you're at, this is why it's so important to know the Bible well, because without it, we can have no good idea of who God is. And we can have no good idea of what God is like. We will always default to a wrong, at least imperfect, but I think more than that, a wrong view of who he is and what he's like without the Bible. And so how does God like self-disclose, which is a great question to ask of any passage in the Bible, but with Psalm 57, how does he self-disclose? What's he saying about himself? What's he saying about his son, who would be the sent one from heaven? Psalm 57 is an invitation. It's it's an invite to believe that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he rejoices over us with singing. And, And we're confronted with this question of, Do I really believe that or not? Do I struggle to believe that? You probably all do. I do. But do I believe it? Am I fighting to believe that? Do I believe that that is his posture towards me on my worst days? Not just my good days, but my worst days as well. We should because we're saved by grace, by his singing us into existence, by his will, by his own son's shed blood, not by our works. And so I think like for me this week, I was thinking, is the idea of a king singing things into existence, is that idea or picture compatible with the idea of a king stingily only rewarding those who have done good? And it just isn't, right? Like, so this is like positive theology saying this is proactively what God is like, but it also defends us against bad theology, not not even by way of saying it, but by way of showing it. So I think like if Jesus were here in the flesh, I think it would surprise us how much he would smile, how much he would hum musically to himself and and how the flowers would open and straighten up when he walked by them and maybe turn to face him like a sunflower in the sun. How the dead themselves couldn't help but awaken when he walked by their tombs. And so I think like his song to us in Psalm 57 terms This is like the the gospel song he sings over us is 
I've weathered the storm of your sin for you. Lay down amidst the lions of death for you. And now I have resurrected the dawn for you and sang my gospel song to you so that you too might hear and be saved and might share in my glory forever. And so here's a final invitation for you and for me. This is how Psalm 57 preaches to us. It, it preaches, it calls out to us and says, believe and repent, believe. Come to, come to Jesus Christ and believe that he loves you and died for your sins. But here's the invitation. Like the indebted ones gathered to David in the cave, let's gather as indebted sinners to the second David, Jesus Christ. Let's gather to his suffering so he might become our savior and captain. So he can quiet us with his love, which again is shown most fully on the cross. Jesus died for you. Believe that and you'll be saved. Believe that, Christian, and you'll be nourished. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for this passage. Thank you for Psalm 57, that it is uh, in its beauty and mystery uh, there uh, to kind of uh, call out uh, amongst the fog and the haze and the weeds uh, to be a clarifying thing, not just in terms of like your character, but ultimately to point us to Christ, who would be the ultimate singing king, the ultimate buried king, the ultimate suffering king. David is wonderfully helpful. A good theology of David helps us in our theology of Christ. Jesus, you are the suffering one for us. You're the buried one for us. You're the resurrected one for us. You're the merciful one. So Father, help us to believe these things. Uh, the world, our hard hearts, circumstance, bad theology, they're always against us. And so help us, Father, to have uh, almost as a, as, as a weapon in our hands, the, the sword of the spirit, the gospel itself, to fight back against those things for our own hearts and others in our church, our families, our kids, our friends. God, forgive us our sin, forgive us our, our debt, and gather us to yourself, Father. Um, make it possible for us to commune with God again. And you have. But Father, we pray that today, that through Jesus' shed blood, you would draw us close. In Christ's name, amen.